traceable through history, and of course, it really hit its sort of uh, turbo. It, it hit a hyperdrive with the Obergefell decision, which was the decision that effectively legalized same-sex marriage. So we've seen a general devaluing of marriage, and this is not something that's just happened in a vacuum and really a loss of the purpose of marriage. And we've talked about uh, the state and marriage, and why is the state even interested in marriage? Not the state in terms of Florida specifically, but the state in terms of the government. Why does the government even care who is married or not? Um, if marriage is nothing more than just a union between two people who, are, who just really like each other, well, why does the state even care about that? And that's a, that's a legitimate question. But once upon a time, it was understood that marriage was a committed relationship, a monogamous, monogamous, exclusive relationship that was geared towards a specific end of having children. That doesn't mean marriages that don't have children are not legitimate, but that was the end of marriage. That was where most marriages in a typical situation would end. So I think all of these things and a general disregard for scripture, a loss of authority of scripture, and we'll talk about that more um, today and how that's functioned as well. So that's where we've been. So what do we want to do today? I want to look at what the Bible says about homosexuality and this issue of attraction, um, Bible and homosexuality, and then the Bible and purity and attraction. I want to mention a few thoughts on the idea of, of pornography. We won't spend all of our time on that today. And then I want to talk about the next generation. Um, what happens next? Uh, what happens now? And I think it's important before we get there, uh, you know, you always want to under-promise and over-deliver, right? Uh, so don't expect too much out of this. I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, we have a trends. And let's just, let's just kind of see if we can see some trajectories uh, that we see forming up. And for some of you, that's going to be a very scary path to walk down. Um, but I, but I, actually wanna, I, wanna, I actually want to leave us in a, in a place of, of pretty, pretty good hope um, at the end. So that's what we plan uh, to do. All right. As one great theologian said, we've got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. So we're going to continue on. Um, that wasn't a great theologian. That was from Smokey and the Bandit. But <laughs> moving along. All right. Um, did God really say? So there's different reactions. We're going to look at what the Bible actually says about this issue of homosexuality, and we're going to use some of Kevin DeYoung's thoughts, a book that I'll show you in just a moment. There are different ways that people respond to what the Bible actually says. When you hit a hard teaching, and I think the Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality is one of those teachings, and it's a hard teaching. There are different ways to handle that if you don't like it. One, you can repudiate it. You can see it, understand it, and hate it. Say, that's what the God of the Bible is. That's what he says. I hate him. There's Richard Dawkins is a key proponent of this, and this is kind of a side just for a moment. Um, this is conceptual framework, so kind of aside from the gender issue with Dawkins in particular here, but just in general, this is how people respond. It's been said that there are two basic tenets, two basic teachings of atheism. One, there is no God, and two, I hate him. And that's kind of how atheism works. Um, you kind of need theism to have atheism, right? Uh, so atheism, it's called alpha privative. You put an A in front of a word, it negates the word. So without theism, without God, that's what atheism is. And so that is kind of the idea behind, uh, behind atheism. I have a short little video clip. Is our, the pulpit sound should be on from the earlier video. Short little video clip from Richard Dawkins just to see what a peachy character he is and how he actually feels about the Bible. He's probably the most famous atheist around today if you're not familiar with Dawkins. So let's see what Dawkins has to say about the Bible. The, the best candidate, I suppose, for strident in the God delusion, maybe the only one, is the opening two sentences of chapter 2. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So that's what some people think about the God of the Bible, and I appreciate his clarity, if nothing else. 
Dawkins actually understands a lot more about the God of the Bible than some people do. And when he starts to talk about things like heaven and hell, he starts to say, you can't be a Christian. You can't hold to this book and not say that these things exist. He doesn't believe it, but he says, it's right there in your book. And the people that want to sort of hide behind Jesus and say, yeah, God had a couple of bad millennia, but now he's really nice because of Jesus. Well, that doesn't work either, because if you read the end of the story, you see Jesus comes back as the king and the judge. And so I think Dawkins actually gets a little bit, uh, at least. Now, he's obviously not a believer. You heard his commentary there. He's obviously shaking his fist in the face of God rather than bowing his knee in submission to him, but he's repudiating it. Um, He's not trying to play fast and loose with the text, but he hates it. So that's one route. So when you hit something hard in the Bible... That's one route. Repudiation. Next, reduction. You could just say that, well, did God really say? Does the Bible actually say that? Is that actually true? Is that actually the word of God? This was the Jefferson approach, Thomas Jefferson. So I have a copy of the Jefferson Bible, and I just brought this for you because it's really interesting to me. So the Jefferson Bible, and I just, I hold it up to show you the size of the Jefferson Bible. What Jefferson did is he took copies of the scripture, and this was the original cut and paste, you know, not using the control C uh, type of cut and paste on your word processor. He actually cut and pasted a Bible together, and this is what he came up with. So this is what he considers to be valid, all right? Just look at the volume of that. It's basically the teachings of Jesus minus anything supernatural. So any of the miracles any of the things that Jefferson and Appreciator like, you just reduce it down, well, that's not really true and valid. And so you become the arbiter of what's right and wrong, what God actually said, what God actually meant, and well, here it is. And so you reduce the scripture down to, yeah, I know there's some hard text, I know there's some hard passages, I know that God said something about this in the scripture, but that's not really God's word. Um, It's not really God's word. And so Jefferson was... Jefferson's hard to peg, actually, as far as like modern political theory and exactly where he would be. He's kind of an interesting cat, um, and we, we're not going to get into him too much um, today. But he was sort of a precursor to what would later develop into sort of a full-orb theology, and that's, that's sort of modern-day liberalism, uh, theological liberalism. Uh, J. Gresham Mason wrote a lot on this. Um, he was a professor early 1900s. Read a lot on this, and Machen's assessment at the end of the day was theological liberalism is actually a different religion. Um, he, he said they're, they're not saying the same thing that Christians are, and we just need to understand that. And so when you hit something in the Bible that you don't really like, well, you know, who says that was in the original? Well, did, he didn't really mean that. Jesus didn't really mean that. Paul didn't really mean that. James didn't really mean that. And so you, you get to sort of reduce it down to either A, it's not really the word of God, or two, that doesn't apply to me because I don't feel like it applies to me. And so that's another route. And then the last one, and this is what I think is actually gaining a little bit of traction today, uh, reinterpreting the word, reinterpreting the scriptures Uh, Matthew Vines, and talking specifically, although it applies in other theological areas as well, but talking specifically about this issue of homosexuality, Matthew Vines put out a book called God and the Gay Christian, and this one made some waves. This was in 2014. He put this book out. The reason Matthew Vines' book was noteworthy is Vines said that he does believe that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. He could define inerrancy and defend it just as well as anybody in this room. What he said is that we've misunderstood these texts. We've misunderstood these texts. And so these texts that you think mention something about all homosexual relationships are wrong or sinful, you just misunderstood those. And what those texts are really going after is things like abusive relationships, things that are non-monogamous and non-committed, non-exclusive relationships. So as long as those relationships stay in the context of a committed relationship, that's actually what those texts were about. This deserved a response, and it got plenty of response from a number of people because it was sort of a new era in this conversation of people that are no longer saying, well, the text doesn't matter or that text isn't real. He's actually dealing with the text. And so it kind of posed a new danger um, on this front. So this, this paradigm, though, if you just keep this in the back of your mind with all sorts of things, um, when people hit things in the Bible they don't like, you repudiate it, 
you reduce it down or you just reinterpret it uh, to your own liking. And this is, this is how we deal with text. Um, of course, the right response is to submit ourselves under the text, but these are the wrong responses to hard teaching. So what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? I won't look up all of these, but I want you to know these seven key texts, and you might just want to write these down. Um, You're welcome to take a picture of these. If you let me know, I'll smile for you. (laughs) I see you guys sometimes taking pictures in the main service of the slides, and I always want to stop and smile, but I don't want to distract everybody. So, and and I'm glad to send you these if you'll send me a note, um, and I'll try to remember (laughs) to send them to you. So, uh, seven key texts on homosexuality. And I would also recommend, this is a a book that I think is super helpful. Um, It's a small book, so it's not going to overwhelm you with data and information. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, he wrote a book called, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Um, DeYoung has a unique gift of synthesizing huge amounts of information. So DeYoung, he's really a gifted writer and teacher, and he just has the ability to take, you know, volumes of material and say, here's the two paragraphs you need to know from this. And so he's done that in this book for us, and I think it's super, super helpful. So a few things that we've already seen a little bit in Genesis. These are the seven key texts that I think you have to deal with uh, if you are going to understand this issue of homosexuality and what the Bible actually teaches. So Genesis 1 and 2, we've looked at these already. Humans are gendered, and we see this male and female. They are equally created in the image of God. We see that in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Male and female, he created them in the image of his likeness, image and likeness. And so we see that equality. Uh, Very clearly we see equality. We also see distinction. This is in Genesis 2. We see that the woman was taken from the man. We see that she was there, put there to be his helper. We see that Paul quotes this um, a few different times in 1 Timothy 2, or 1 Timothy, yeah, 1 Timothy 2, and then also 1 Corinthians 11 in the naughty little context of the head coverings passage, which is a good one. But he quotes this, and so this creation order becomes an important reality um, in Paul's theology and in Christian theology. It becomes a very important reality. So Genesis 1 and 2, we see equality, distinction, and we see this idea of marriage. And the definition of marriage that pulls across all of the Bible is he created the male and female to be married. Man shall leave his his, uh, household, be joined to his wife, Um, the two become one. And so this is the definition that Jesus grabs onto in Matthew 19. It's a definition that Paul grabs onto in Ephesians 5. And so what is biblical marriage? It is the union between a man and a woman as defined in Genesis. It never changes. It just never changes. And so I've made this point a few different times. We are not free to go along with a redefinition of marriage because marriage has been defined for us. It's not something that the Bible has not spoken to. The Bible has spoken to us um, on these things. And so there's a certain clarity that we have to speak with when it comes to marriage. There are, in the Bible, what we could call straight line issues, and there are jagged line issues. There are straight line issues, such as marriage, such as the value of human life, such as lying, stealing, cheating, straight line issue. Bible says this, you have to do it. There are other issues that are what we could call jagged line issues. What's a fair tax rate? Well, <laughs> depends on who you ask, right? Um, you know, should we do flat tax or some sort of a graded, hyper-confusing system like we have now? Uh, should we do that? What about health care? You know, what about some sort of social program? And so we could say, the, does the Bible speak to those things? It's like, well, yes but it's in a jagged line sort of way, meaning there's principles that apply, most definitely principles that apply. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't have anything to do with that. What I'm saying, and I'm borrowing this paradigm from Jonathan Lehman, I think it's helpful. Some issues straight line, some issues jagged line. Marriage is a straight line issue, all right? So let's just don't pretend like it's not. It's there, it's in the Bible. And so we're not free to go along with the redefinition. All right, so that's Genesis uh, one and two and the ideas of marriage. Genesis 19 then, we have the sin of sodomy. Uh, This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels that come to visit Lot and uh, the men of the town want to have relations with them in an ungodly and unholy way. And we see that, uh, we see the the term sodomy comes from from this. Um, And so that's really the first mention that we get of something like this. Leviticus 18 and 20, there's a lot of, there's a, 
they're doing slightly different things, and it's obviously sandwiched. There's Leviticus 19, which is a very important passage in the Old Testament law. But these two passages are doing very similar things. So if you look at these in particular, you're going to see prohibition against all sorts of sexual deviancy. Um, You see prohibitions against things like incest, uh, bestiality, and then homosexuality specifically is mentioned in those two passages, uh, Leviticus 18, 22, and then 2013. So those are are evident. Um, They're there. And they're called an abomination, um, along with a list of, of other things as well, such as um, sleeping with family members um, and all sorts of abominations that are, that are right there in that text. Uh, so let's jump over to New Testament. People say, well, that's the Old Testament. It also says don't wear mixed fabric clothing or eat shellfish. Um, and so people will throw out the Old Testament as if, you know, well, that doesn't have anything to do with us. I don't agree with that approach to the Old Testament. But let's just go to the New Testament for the sake of the argument. Romans chapter 1, 24 through 32 deal with this in a particular way. I want to read a few verses here. I'll actually set this up by reading verse 18. Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine power, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So Paul starts out saying, there is a God, he's created a world, and everybody knows there is a creator. You can't walk outside without knowing that there is a creator. And Paul's argument is, but people have unrighteously suppressed that truth. It's like, you know, the kids in the, in the pool this summer are out at the beach. You take the beach ball. And I don't know, it's not just kids, right? Uh, you, you have to try to hold the beach ball underwater. It's just what you do when you're in the pool and you have a beach ball. Everybody knows this. So you, you just got to hold it. You got to try to hold it underwater and inevitably you lose eventually because it's just got to come to the surface. So that's kind of the illustration. The, the creation screaming out. Creation design. The, the, the fine-tuning of the planet that we live on. It's just amazing. We keep finding things scientifically. Uh, Adam, we were just talking about the Grand Canyon, just the splendor and the majesty. And there's so many things that we know now that they didn't even know then because of scientific discoveries. And it's just screaming out that there is a God. But they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that's the part where they're holding the beach ball underwater. They're just trying to avoid the obvious conclusion that there is a God. So What happens? Because of these things, the wrath of God is revealed. Now, what's interesting about this phrase in verse 18, it says the wrath of God is revealed. It's, I know it's a little early for grammars, but it's present active indicative, meaning that it's an ongoing thing that's happening now. So the wrath of God is being revealed currently. In what way is the wrath of God now being revealed? The wrath of God is being revealed, as we see in verses 24, 26, and 28, The wrath of God is being revealed in that God is letting you have your sin. The sin is the wrath of God. God is letting you have it. As a parent, this is one of the tools in your tool bag sometimes. To let your kids do something that's not permanently harmful to them, but maybe unpleasant that teaches them a lesson for the time being, right? We've all employed this at some point. You know what? You really want to do that? All right, knock it out. And they do whatever that thing is, and then eventually they go, huh, that was a bad plan. Like, yeah, it is a bad plan, right? And we, we use this. And this is, in a way, the Lord is saying, you want that? Do you, do you really want that? Okay, fine, have it. Verse 24. Therefore, therefore, because of what? Because people don't acknowledge God and they want to live their own lives and they want to live their own ways, God says, fine. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So that's the first time. Verse 26, and this is the one that speaks specifically to homosexuality. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So, they exchange relations that are contrary to nature. It's talking about the sexual union between a man and a woman, and they're doing something that's contrary to the design. Nature has a nature, and everybody knows that. 
has a way it's supposed to work and function. Verse 27, so the women did this and the men did as well. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So we have homosexuality, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. So it, God is allowing them then to, to have these relationships and he's letting it happen um, on a large scale is the implication of the passage. And then lastly, he gives them up again. We won't talk as much about this one. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And this one is more general. And so he has this, in the New Testament, you get these lists sometimes. Uh, you get vice and virtue lists. Uh, this is a vice list, uh, not like Miami Vice, although probably some similarities there. It's a, it's a vice list. These are, these are things that ought not to be done. And these are the things God's allowing them to do. That's the idea behind that. And so three different times God gave them up. So I think when you get in this conversation with someone, a friend out there who legitimately wants to engage the conversation, someone legitimately wants to engage the conversation, they say the Bible doesn't make a clear statement on homosexuality. I would, I would direct them right here to Romans 1, 24 through 26, 24 through 28, and just show them. The Bible actually does make a very clear statement on this. And so Matthew Vines and his group would say, well, that's only talking about a non-committed, non-monogamous relationship. I just don't think that works because he's talking about nature itself and the actual physical act of the sexual intercourse in this text. And some of this is graphic. I do apologize for that. We're not trying to be shocking in anything that we say, but we need to understand what the Bible actually says. The Bible isn't prudish about these things. It actually speaks to it. Um, and says it clearly. So when the Bible speaks clearly, we want to speak clearly as well. So that's one text. Another text that I think is important uh, to go to is 1 Corinthians. So let's look at this one. First Corinthians chapter 6. Let's uh, start reading in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So that's a strong statement, the unrighteous. So who are the unrighteous? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's an important statement, and verse 11 is equally important, and such were some of you. So it's not an all-time, you're forever cut off from the kingdom. He's reminding them that some of you were involved in these things. Implication, now that you're a new person in Christ, new man in Christ, as he will talk about in 2 Corinthians, you're leaving these things behind. Oh, sure, we're still sinful. We're still married to this sinful flesh. We recognize that, but you're leaving those things behind. I want to explain what's going on here in verse 9, right at the end. Some of you, depending on the translation you're looking at, uh, it says, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, again, the Bible is actually a little bit more graphic than our sort of nice, kind English translations um, give us here. The term homosexuality is actually a translation of two Greek words. And it refers to the, person, the, the sexual act itself. So some of your translations might say effeminate, if you see the term effeminate there. It's referring to male sexual intercourse, the male who takes on the role of the woman. Um, that's the actual terms that are being talked about here. And so, again, for those who say the Bible doesn't make a clear statement on this, it's actually kind of embarrassingly clear. Um, exactly what's being talked about here. So it's right there. Paul said it. It's sort of flattened out a little bit in our English. Um, most of you, if you're looking at a reference Bible, it'll probably have a footnote there. Um, mine does, the ESV. It says the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. All right, so that's the idea behind those two terms. All right, so the Bible clearly makes a statement on this. 
And 1 Timothy 1, uh, 8 through 11, I won't go to that one because it basically says the same thing. Um, This idea, again, of homosexuality is mentioned as something that is evil behavior that is to be avoided. So what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? It's really undeniable what the Bible actually says. All right? Any thoughts on that so far? I want to deal with common objections that people throw, throw at the Bible and at Christians. And this is, I'm going to borrow some from Kevin DeYoung's book here because I think it's super helpful. Um, we, on, we on the same page? Anything we're not addressing here? All right. So let us move along. So objections. Some people say, and there's seven of these total. Some people say, well, the Bible, yeah, there are those verses, but the Bible doesn't talk a lot about homosexuality. I mean, it's a big book, and there's only seven passages, right? Uh, So is this really that big of a deal? Why are Christians making this such a big deal? Uh, To that, we would just say, how many times does the Bible have to say it for it to be wrong? Um, It's there, it's clear, it's obvious. So I don't think that really does much, um, that objection. Uh, I think some of these other objections are actually stronger. Uh, Next, the Bible is addressing non-committed, non-consensual, non-monogamous sexuality. Uh, This is Matthew Vine's point. I've mentioned this already, so I won't spend too much time on it. But again, I think part of the argument that Paul and others are making is the nature argument. These acts are actually against nature. It wasn't designed to function this way. Um, You know, uh, you can look from the earliest days of understanding something about anatomy, you start to recognize the differences in male and female. And you recognize that that's not how it's supposed to work. Um, And so nature, again, has a nature. And so I don't think that has anything to do with it. Next, Christians talk about this, but ignore other issues like gluttony or laziness. Now, this is probably true, right? Um, we all have things that we prefer to talk about um, and other things that we prefer not to talk about. Let's just face that, uh, that reality. But, I mean, the obvious point is that that doesn't invalidate the point. Um, it's, a, you know, it's, the, it's the yes, but you know, kind, of, kind of approach. When you get in an argument with somebody and they say, you were unkind in what you said. Yeah, probably, but you said... Like, well, now you just shifted the whole thing back to them, and you didn't actually deal with yourself. And so, sure, there might be an imbalance in some people, and and sure, some Christians haven't handled this conversation great. We can admit that, too. It doesn't invalidate what the Bible actually says, though. Um, It's just shifting. It's a red heron getting you to go run, chase something else, and get off the the trail. So I don't think that really means anything. Yep. Right. People are trying to get our children in school to say that homosexuality is good, and they're trying to get us to say it's good, and they're trying to force their way into our churches and into our... So, so yes, we're talking about it because we're being attacked, and we're being forced to, to celebrate it, and we're saying, no, we're not going to celebrate If they did that with laziness or gluttony or lying, we would probably be talking about this. That's right. Yeah, it, it's under attack. I t- totally agree with that. And yeah, it's, it's what everybody's talking about. Everybody's talking about it. Right? Some of us don't really want to talk about it all the time, but you, you just can't avoid this right now. And so, sure, we, we are talking about it. We're having a whole class on it for four weeks. So, yeah, Adam. Um, so Matthew Vines, he wrote a whole book on this. Um, he takes each text and sort of works his way through the text, and he tries to show in each case that he's not actually talking about these, these things. So uh, in the like Romans 1 text, he would say, see, what Paul is talking about is uh, pederasty, which was common in the, in the ancient Roman world, which was, uh, we would call pedophilia today. It was an older male with a younger male. They would take advantage of them. Um, it was kind of part of the culture. And he would say, this, this has more to do with power structures. Uh, it has more to do with taking advantage of somebody. It's a non-consensual um, sort of thing. And so that's really what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. Not so much homosexuality in general, but it's more 
He's, he is, but I don't think he's doing it right. So, yeah. It, yeah, so he wrote this book. Um, some of the guys at Southern Seminary, they got a pre, uh, they got a publisher copy of that before it came out. And so they had responses written like literally the next week. <laughs> um, so it was like book length response to Matthew Vines. And I think the, the guys at Southern, um, a few, and Moeller was a part of this and, and some other guys, Jim Hamilton and I forget now, Denny Burke was part of that, a uh, few others. And I think they recognize the danger of this because they are saying that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. And so they are dealing with the text um, in a new, and that's the new challenge of, of this whole movement. Yeah, Erica. Yeah. You're redefining it. And that's where I think it's important to go back as well to some of these earlier texts. So regardless of the one that wants to argue, well, Leviticus doesn't have anything to do with us. I think it does have something to do with us, but um, another, another lesson, another day, right? I, th- I think it's just important to note this isn't a new thing. Uh, it gets, it's been there. Um, it's been there all along uh, in the Bible. Uh, Leviticus 18 and 20 make that really, really clear. And those texts, they are very explicit as well. Like, there is no mystery about what they're talking about. Go read them. You won't be confused um, at all. You might wish you were confused after you read them, but you won't be confused on what they're talking about. All right. Yep. Yeah. That, that's right. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, I, and I've tried to draw that out in a couple different ways, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. When you, when you separate out life from the, this is scientifically verifiable, this is what's real and true, everything else is just a value, and it doesn't really matter. You can just call, him, call God whatever you want to call him, whatever value system you want to call him. And it, it's, it creates, and this was last week, we talked about this a little bit, but it creates this idea that morality is just a social construct, why is something wrong? Because they said it was wrong. Who are they and what if they're wrong? They said it was wrong. So wrong for them, wrong for you, wrong, right for your, them, right for you. Your truth, you hear a lot about that. Speak your truth to the situation. Like, well, whose truth is gravity? It's truth. And that's what we're saying is there's no division in that in my thinking. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit more about this. Um, I need to move through these quickly because there's some other things we need to get to. Uh, another objection, the church should be a place for the broken, therefore welcoming LGBTQIA+, and other groups as well. Um, to this, I would just simply say, I agree. We should welcome. Doesn't mean we can't call something sin, all right? We need to be careful what we're saying here. Um, if somebody wanted to attend here tomorrow, next week, they are certainly welcome to. They will not be received into membership, though. Um, they will, as, as time moves on and you have relationships, you will have a conversation about a lifestyle that we believe is detrimental and sinful and harmful. So yes and no. <laughs> yes, you should, be, you should be welcoming of sinners. We're going to see in the text this morning that the Pharisees were just enraged at Jesus because he hung out with sinners. It's kind of funny um, how mad they were that these people were repenting, and it's almost like a Jonah situation. So yes, we should be welcoming, but that doesn't mean buying the ideology. That doesn't mean caving and bending, all right? And I know that I'm, I'm trying to draw a pretty fine line here, uh, but that's what I think is important. Uh, next, 
the church has been wrong before and we'll get slavery thrown uh, a lot. Um, a lot of times this is where this conversation uh, comes from. So the church has been wrong about interpretation of the Bible. People use the Bible to try to justify slavery. They talked about things like the descendants of Sham, Ham, and Japheth and one brother is going to serve another and African people are descendants of this one. And so they actually, with, you know, straight faces made the argument that slavery is a completely biblical shadow slavery um, argument. And so they say, well, the church has been wrong before, and they tried to use the Bible to say these things, and so we think they're wrong again. Um, and that's, you know, there were, there were people who used the Bible to argue for a flat earth back in the day. Uh, the angels call from the four corners of the earth, hey, spheres don't have corners, right? So therefore, earth must be flat. Now, we would say, I think the church has mistaken and misunderstood that. And so they're saying, you guys, you're holding on to this Bible, but you're misinterpreting it, and it's going to be shown out in history eventually. You're just on the wrong side of history, as it were. And I would again say that we're arguing from something that's in nature. We're arguing something that's part of the creation order. And I just don't think those are apples and oranges that we're comparing when you talk about that. Next, I want to spend a minute on this one. You can't ask people to deny how God made them. So some people have innate desires, uh, either for a man or woman, and there's nothing you can do about that. So you're just you're telling these people they must remain celibate, they must remain single for life because they don't have any attraction to the opposite sex. So what do you do with that? Well, as we've noted many times, not every desire that you have is a good desire. We all know that. You have plenty of desires that aren't good all the time. So same-sex desires are desires that are not healthy and good. Some may be born and have attraction to the same sex. There's a number of books on this that are out there right now. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield's book is really helpful, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She wrote a second one, More Secret Thoughts, and she's written a few books now uh, that deal with this. Um, The Lord really worked in her something new. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse writing on queer theory. She goes on a research project because she she wants to research the Bible and, and to write about it in her queer theory work. She ends up meeting this pastor who shows her hospitality, invites her over to his house, they gets, ends up knowing the family. Um, long story short, she ends up converting to Christianity. That wasn't the plan. She was on a research project. Wasn't the plan. Ends up converting to Christianity, and it's just an amazing story of God's grace. The Lord's changed her desires. She's now a pastor's wife and has kids. Um, pretty amazing. There are other people. Uh, they say that they ne- the desires never changed and they don't act on those desires because that would be dishonoring to the Lord. That's why I don't think we should use the term gay Christian because it implies that you're acting on that desire. Um, you don't define yourself in that way. Uh, you don't define yourself if you've been with me so far and you agree that we should, we have categories of things called sins. If you're with me, and I think most of you are, you don't define yourself by any of those things. Hi, my name's Alan. I'm an impatient Christian. <laughs> you wouldn't define yourself by that. Um, n- no, you're, I'm Alan. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I struggle with patience. And, and I think we can, we can say that. Um, that's mine. You pick yours. Uh, that's, it, we, we, all, we all understand that. So I don't think you need to define yourself by that because it implies you're acting on it. And it implies it's immutable, too, um, which, you know, again, the Lord may change that. All right, we need to move along. Um, I want to get into this gender in the next gen sort of uh, commentary and talk for our last 10 minutes or so here. So when we, whenever we talk about generations, I, I have some mixed feelings on this whole conversation about mix, uh, about generations. I've been teaching worldview classes. Uh, you guys know that. This was my 10th year teaching worldview classes. Um, and I've seen some differences in the classes, you know, from 10 years ago to today. And uh, so, so we can see some differences in the way that we think. I also think that every generation, I wish we could just close our eyes and do a show of hands here. I wish, I think... Every generation thinks they have challenges that no generation has ever faced. Agree with that statement? I remember having this conversation with my dad. Like, you just don't understand my generation. And then now I'm the old guy. Um, Insert old guy story here. Kids these days, right? Uh, And I think this is just universally true, um, that every generation experiences this of, yeah, it's never been like this before. That's true and it's not true. 
there's nothing new under the sun. There's new ways to succumb to temptation, but there's really not new temptations and things. So I think it's part of just living in the world. So every generation thinks they're unique. Just ask them, right? Um, your generation thinks that. I don't even know. I mean, we're speaking to across many generations here today. It's just kind of interesting to me. So I do think there's some unique challenges um, today. And I, I see it, you know, amongst my students. And a lot of that is because of uh, technology, um, social media, movies, music, things like that. So I do think uh, gig economy, you know, is sort of reshaping the way that we think about work and life and uh, these sort of things. Um, COVID had a big impact on some of that. So there are other factors. I'm not dismissing that completely, but I do think it's kind of interesting um, how generations tend to think. The question really is what's shaping your worldview? And that's what I want to talk about this for a minute. Um, I'm going to do a couple of lessons later in the summer on technology. And this is, this is maybe my like two-minute preview of what I want to do. With that, this is really important because I think technology is playing a huge role in this. Uh, now, when I say technology, as soon as Adam took a, he took a stick and he attached a sharp rock with a vine to the stick and he whacked a weed, as soon as he did that, or hoed the ground to plant a seed, as soon as he did that, that's technology. It's leveraging the resources of the earth and it's doing something with it, all right? So technology in the purest, simplest sense is that. What we're mainly talking about when we say technology though is digital technology, um, and so we'll, we'll talk about that. So two problems here. C.S. Lewis referred to it as chronological snobbery. I love that term, chronological snobbery. And then there's the reverse of that as well. Chronological snobbery is an appeal to novelty, so anything new is better. Reverse chronological snobbery is an appeal to tradition. Anything old is better. And most of you are probably inclined towards one of these, <laughs> if you're really honest. Um, you know, you, you don't want the barbecue restaurant to change the menu. What was wrong with the old sandwich? You know? and others are like, oh, cool, something new. And so you, we're just we're kind of inclined towards one of these or the other. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's less generational. I think it's more personality, actually. Um, I think some people just like new. Uh, I think as you get older, you tend towards a little bit more nostalgia, which, you know, define older. But I, I think that's generally true, mainly because we just don't want to learn new things. You know, it's like I was just mad when, when the iPhone took away the, the little home button at the bottom. I'm like, what was wrong with the home button? Like, it was fine. Like, why'd you try to fix it? Just stop trying to fix it. It was fine. But, you know, kids these days, right? All right, so let's talk about how does discipleship work in the next generation? This is so interesting to me. So technology, and again, what I mean by that is modern digital technology is changing how we view discipleship. So discipleship paradigms are being rewired. You are product of the generation and the culture that you live in. I just used a term, rewiring. All right? What if I had said to David and Solomon 3,000 years ago, you know, this whole thing, uh, this whole battle stuff, going to war all the time, it's really rewiring the way people think. What would they have said? What's a wire? <laughs> right? Like, they, it, they would have no context for that. So the illustrations in the Bible, it's agrarian, it's flocks, it's fruit, it's vines, it's trees, it's buildings, castles, rocks, fortresses, strongholds. You think in terms of the world that you live in, and that's just a very interesting thing. So we, we tend to think in that way. We talk about rewiring, um, we talk about resetting, when we talk about uh, having children, what do we call it? What do we typically say? Reproducing? That's a factory term. We're producing. So it's just interesting. It's just the way that we think. Um, and so we, we have been shaped very much. Um, I, we're like, we're, every illustration I would use reflects that. We're like hard drives that were kind of programmed with the data. That, again, wouldn't have made sense 100 years ago. So here's the problem that, that happens. The next gen, they are growing up in a world not where you speak through a digital device to another human, they're growing, which is what most of us grew up in, they're growing up in a world where you actually speak to the device, and it speaks back, and that's normal. 
And they, they grew up in that. And so Tim Challies talks about the difference between being a digital native versus a digital immigrant. And this is where I think the generational stuff starts to come into play a little bit. Um, you hand a 15-year-old your phone if you need to get something done, most of us, if you're of a certain age or older. And so here's the problem. The, the, the kids these days, <laughs> I like sounding like the old guy. I think it's kind of fun. The kids these days, if they want to know something, they're not asking, they're not finding grandpa. They have Google. They have YouTube. Why would they go ask grandpa? What does he know? And so the problem is discipleship paradigms then become changed. Well, if grandpa can't figure out how to delete an app on his iPhone, how could he possibly tell me about the meaning of life? And so you see what's happening. Uh, in the old days, I remember going, uh, I was in Montana one time, and I went with a friend, and we went to, uh, went to this place to, to pheasant hunt. And I remember this lady, she, was, uh, she, she, she made yarn. So she had this gigantic loom, and she, it's like a all four limbs kind of thing. And just watching her do this thing, it was just amazing. And she was talking about teaching somebody how to do that. And so in generations past, you would come and you would learn the skill, and it, was, it sort of took a lifetime to master this and get it just right. And so th- that would require an older person passing down knowledge, and so in today's world, it's like, I got the Google. <laughs> you know, I don't need you. I have YouTube. Why would I do that? So this is the world that we're living in. Um, discipleship paradigms are being re- reset and rewritten. Movies. Uh, movies have been around for a while, obviously. Uh, this was an interesting story. I just came across this one. Uh, so in 1978, Kim Jong-il, uh, this is not Kim Jong-un, but it's part of the same Kim dynasty, He was in charge of the propaganda machine in North Korea shortly after North Korea-South Korea split. Uh, He kidnapped these two people, a husband and wife, who were estranged at the time to make the situation even more complicated. They were estranged at the time. The woman was a famous movie star in South Korea. The man, her husband, was a producer. And their films were not very good in North Korea. And so he kidnaps them, forces them to North Korea to make movies for them because he sees the power of the propaganda that can be put into a movie. And so he ends up holding them for eight years. They finally go on a trip to try to raise funds for their, their movie. They take advantage of the opportunity. They run off to the U.S. Embassy, and they're actually escaped after eight years. Pretty amazing, though. And my takeaway from that, it's an interesting story. My takeaway from that is the power of the motion picture. They recognize that. Another one. It's a Wonderful Life. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Did you know that was on an FBI list for communist propaganda? Because Mr. Potter was this mean, nasty capitalist. And what ends, what wins in the end is this socialist sort of ideal where everybody pulls together their resources and George Bailey keeps his house and everybody's happy, wee! And then everybody cries at the end and it's just sweet. So the movie's got a lot of virtues and I'm not, watch the movie, enjoy it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not after you on this. But what it communicates to me is that the powers that be understand the power of motion pictures. They understand the power of movies. In South Korea, North Korea, they understood it. In uh, today's world. Another one, Disney story. So Florida passed HB 1557, the Parental Rights in Education Bill. You guys remember hearing about this, I'm sure, popularly known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. Um, Bob Chapek, who's now out at Disney, and Bob Iger is back in at Disney as a longtime CEO. He came back, and partly in response to all this, when Florida passed this bill, which limits the ability of teachers to speak about gender-related issues with young ones, Chapek originally said that Disney wasn't going to comment on this. And he said some interesting things, though. He says, there are more effective ways to implement change. Corporate statements, quote, do very little to change outcomes or minds. Uh, CEO Chapek cited works that Disney has produced promoting LGBT normalization and social change as well, uh, like Encanto and Modern Family, and he quoted a couple of others too, like Black Panther. And he says, these and all our diverse stories are our corporate statements, and they are more powerful than any tweet or lobbying effort. It's just interesting. Now, we should note that uh, Chapek ended up reversing course. He got so much pushback from Disney employees, um, especially here in Florida. He got so much pushback that he eventually, uh, eventually Disney did jump like headlong into this battle, and it's still going on um, actually right now. I just bring that up to say, this, these are the influences that are, that are influencing the next gen. And 
And they're influencing you as well, but I think maybe particularly in a unique way on the next gen. So what do we do about it? Well, we can make bubbles or battlefields, all right? We can, uh, you know, bubble wrap our kids and just say, you're going to stay at home. We're going to lock you in the closet, give you some meals. You're not going to have a phone. Um, and you, because I can't risk you being infected out there in the world. But is that really the way Jesus wants his people to live in this world? Is that really what he wants? I think we need to send them out into the battlefield. And we're, we're in the battlefield too. Um, so monasteries, communes, they might sound appealing. <laughs> on, on, on particular days, I think some of y'all are ready to buy, you know, 50 acres and just like forget it. I get it, but it's, it's really a problem. So we have this tendency to think the world is the worst it's ever been. I don't agree with that. Read the Bible, read Judges, um, read the Old Testament. It's not the worst it's ever been. Jesus calls us to be in the world, not of the world. We are part of this system, part of the world and when you go create a commune or monastery, you know the biggest issue? You take people with you, and there's sin in people. So you're just going to recreate the thing somewhere at some point. So that's not the answer. Paul's instructions. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. Some people had misunderstood him. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. (laughs) So Paul says, hey, uh, you can't remove yourself completely without any influence from people that don't love Jesus. It's just not possible unless you're going to remove yourself from the world, which isn't, it's hypothetical, obviously. So you can't do that. So I don't have time to go into that. Um, All right, we'll just end with some prayer. Man, next time. Um, so here's my prayers, and I'll, I'll lead us in this. Uh, my prayer is one, truth will prevail, um, and I think it will. Uh, I think there's some good reason to think that we're bouncing off the bottom of some of this and uh, some of this philosophy. I think some people are starting to wake up and recognize reality. Um, next, I pray for Christians to have faith over fear. Um, we, are, we do not have to live in this fearful state, um, fearing everything that's around the corner and what comes next. Can you imagine being a Hebrew person having a child in captivity in Egypt? And yet they were, they, were, they were sending out babies like crazy. The land was full of them. And then hope in Christ, not politics or policies. We can advocate for things that we think are for the common good, for human flourishing. I encourage you to engage yourself in that process. That's not your final hope, though. Final hope is in Christ and his return. We need to keep that in mind. All right. Lord, we do pray for these three things. We pray that your truth... Nature does have a nature. These things seem self-evident, and we pray that truth would prevail, and ultimately the truth of the gospel. Uh, We pray for faith over fear. We pray that we would not um, engage in these fear-mongering tactics, but that we would recognize that you have a plan for planet Earth, and we, we delight to see how this unfolds. And Lord, we also pray for ourselves that we would not put our, our hope, particularly in any, any policy, politician, but that we would ultimately put our hope in Christ and in the return that, is, that we pray is soon. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to do these things. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.